Well, our world is filled with bad news. It doesn't take long uh, for you to open up the news on the internet, or maybe you read still a physical paper or the TV, and you run across all kinds of bad news. In fact, most of the news that we read is bad news. So this week, I thought it would be uh, fun to find some good news. So I went on the internet, and I looked for some good news stories. It, it turns out that there are actually entire websites dedicated to tracking down good news just for people like us who may go, I want, I want some good news. So I thought I would share a few of these stories with you this morning. Some are heartwarming. Some you might just find more interesting or fun. Uh, but the first one, I ran across this story. A newborn left in a Florida rescue station was adopted by the firefighter who found her. So, you know, the story starts, obviously, with a little bit of tragedy and sadness. Uh, a, a mother who couldn't care for this baby, but left the child in a, in a safe type of uh, station, a rescue station, uh, where the baby was found by a firefighter, and he and his wife had, had not been able to have kids. They were thinking about adoption and hadn't been able up to that point. They decided to adopt this child. So this story that began in tragedy ends in redemption. I think that's really cool. That warmed my heart. Uh, another one I ran across, different kind of story. A Texas oak tree thought to be extinct was discovered in Big Bend National Park. This was just like a month ago. This, this scientist went looking for this type of oak tree. I can't remember what it's called, but everybody thought it was extinct. Turns out Big Bend is the only place, as far as they know, where it is still growing. And they found some. I don't know why his face is so close to the tree. Uh, he's a scientist, I guess, not a photographer. But that's kind of cool. That's good news. Uh, another one. Missing a 15-foot python named Big Mama safely found and returned to Chatsworth family. So, interesting story. There's some bad news here, and that is there are people who, as a pet, have, like, killer snakes that they're not keeping a very close eye on. That's bad news. Good news is they found it when it got away. I think that's good news for the entire community surrounding these people. 15-foot python. They found it safely. Got it back home. Here was one that I thought was cool. Sam Kaplan, 72, graduates from a Georgia college with his 99-year-old mom cheering him on. How cool is that? The last time he took classes was in the 1960s. He never finished his degree. He came back in his 70s, and his mom is 99, and she got to be there to celebrate with him. Man, that, that story really did make me happy. Last one. A courageous dog gives birth to seven puppies after surviving rattlesnake bite. I don't know if you can see that. It says, Molly is the very best girl. Uh, now, so what happened was this, this dog, she was bitten by a rattlesnake. Uh, they gave her the anti-venom, at which point she went into labor and delivered a couple of puppies. They put her in the pet ambulance, which I didn't know was a thing, uh, at which point she delivered three more puppies, and then they got her to the pet hospital, at which point she delivered two more puppies. Now, I don't know how you define courage for a dog. I don't know uh, how they decided that dog was courageous, but that dog has definitely been on a roller coaster of a ride, from getting bitten by a rattlesnake to bringing seven new lives into the world, right? From almost losing her life to producing life. That's pretty cool. So those stories are good news, but I'm going to guess something. They may have warmed your heart a little bit, made you happy, but you're probably not going to remember those stories for very long. 
You'll go out of here and, and they'll fade from your mind. And the reason is because those stories aren't going to change your life. There's nothing about your life that's going to fundamentally be altered uh, because of a courageous puppy or a new type of tree. That's not going to change your life. Uh, there is some good news. There is a type of good news, though, that changes your life, that can transform or alter the trajectory of your life. For example, I still remember when my wife told me each time that she was pregnant with each of our three children, that was really good news that changed everything about my life. It changed my future. It changed my perception of myself. It changed my attitudes and my actions. It changed my finances, right? It changed everything. That type of good news changes everything. We're going to dive in this week to the book of Romans, and we're going to see that Paul, the apostle, is going to present to us the gospel, which is a, a word that in Greek means good news. And he's going to tell us this is good news that changes everything. The gospel isn't just the type of good news that you hear and you say, oh, that's cool, and it lifts your spirits for a few minutes. It's the type of good news that changes how you think about yourself, how you think about God, how you think about your past, your present, and your future, how you think about everything. It transforms lives. The gospel transformed Paul's life. He went for a, from a person who rejected Jesus and persecuted those who followed Jesus to a person who followed Jesus himself and was willing to give his life and his freedom and his time and his reputation to the proclamation of this good news. The book of Romans is Paul's masterpiece of a book. It's a letter written to the church in Rome about how the gospel is the best news in the universe. It's the type of news that changes the trajectory of your life today and the trajectory of your eternity. So as we dive into the book of Romans, and, and by the way, we're going to be in the book of Romans from now until about Easter, so most of the school year. As we dive into the book of Romans, here's what we're going to see. The gospel is not just good news. It is the very best news. That if ever there is a message that is worth this type of superlative, the very best, it applies to the good news. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, became a man, lived a perfect life to fulfill the righteousness of God. He died in our place on a cross to pay the penalty of our failure to be righteous. He rose from the dead, validating that he is who he said he was, and that every enemy of God's people, sin, death, hell, and Satan, every enemy is defeated. And all who trust in Jesus Christ can know that we have eternal life. That's the gospel. It is not just good news. It's the very best news. So as we walk through the book of Romans, every week, we're going to talk about why the gospel is such good news. So where I want to begin this morning, before we dive into Romans chapter 1, we're going to give a bit of background in a moment. But I want us to begin here and ask yourself, has the gospel transformed your life? 
My prayer, of course, is that you've believed it. And if you believed it, you have a different understanding of your future. You know that you have eternal life, that death is not the end. That in and of itself is a huge change in how you think about your life. But if you have believed it, do you understand that the gospel isn't just something we believe once and then forget about and move on, but instead, day after day, it changes how we think about ourselves and about God and about everything. Because if the gospel is true, do you understand? I no longer am defined by my sin and shame from the past, but I am now defined by who God says I am in Jesus Christ and a hopeful future. I'm no no longer a person whose future is in doubt, but whose future is secure in Jesus Christ. I'm no longer a person whose, whose sins separate me from God, but I'm a person who's been brought near in Jesus Christ. It changes everything. It's the very best news. That's what we're gonna see as we look at Romans 1. A little bit of background. As I mentioned, the author is the Apostle Paul. If you don't remember who that is, that's all right. Paul was a Jewish leader in the first century. He was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were kind of the keepers of the law. They were the ones that made sure they fulfilled the law of Moses as well as they possibly could. And then they also made sure everybody else fulfilled the law of Moses. So they were like the guardians of God's holiness of the law. Paul was one of those. When the message of Jesus began to spread, Paul opposed the message of Jesus, one, because he didn't think Jesus was the Messiah, but because he began to hear this message that a, that a person could be reconciled to God, not on the basis of the law, but on the basis of trusting in Christ's righteousness. He heard the message that knowing God was not just for Jewish people, but also for Gentile people. And as a Pharisee, that offended Paul. And so he began to persecute and and try to imprison and try to even kill people who followed Jesus until he met Jesus in a vision on the road to Damascus where Jesus appeared to him and said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And Jesus commissioned Paul to go proclaim the very good news that he had once rejected and opposed and persecuted. So Paul, this probably happened to Paul in the 30s sometime, a few years after Jesus' death and resurrection. For the next 35 years of his life, until he was eventually killed for his testimony of Jesus, he traveled all around the Roman Empire over and over and over and over and over again, simply telling people about the good news. He went from town to town and city to city and place to place. He told Jews, he told Gentiles, he told everybody who would listen that that eternal life is found in Jesus Christ. So it drove him the rest of his life. And he left behind all of these letters to churches expressing the truth of the gospel and his passion for the gospel. That's Paul. This particular one, Romans, probably written about 56 to 58 uh, AD sometime during his third missionary journey around the Roman Empire. He probably was in Corinth as he wrote this letter to Rome. He expressed his desire to visit the Roman church, which he eventually was able to get to Rome, although not in the way he hoped. He got there as a prisoner rather than of his own free will. But somewhere around 56 to 58, he wrote this letter to the church in Rome, composed of Jewish and Gentile Christians, although probably more Gentiles, non-Jews, than Jews. And like I said, the message or the theme of the book is the gospel, the good news. That is the main theme of this 
book. Paul is going to exposit the beauty and the power and the reality of the good news for 16 chapters. Other than 1 Corinthians, this is his longest letter, and it's all about the gospel. And at the heart of the book, again, is this question, why is the gospel the very best news in the universe? Why is it the very best news? Not only for Paul, but for you, for me, for everyone who knows Jesus. Why is this the news that will transform everything? That's what we're going to look at this morning. So dive into Romans chapter 1 with me. I'm going to start in verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So let me pause here. The first reason the gospel is the very best news is because it fulfills God's promises. Paul says, look, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. I am called to be an apostle. That's a word that just kind of means a messenger of this gospel. And I am set apart. My life is dedicated to proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And this good news, he says, hey, this fulfills God's promises. It was promised ahead of time, beforehand, through all of the prophets uh, in the Holy Scriptures. He's referring here to the Old Testament prophets, that one day a Messiah would come, who would be the king of the nation of Israel, but not only over the nation of Israel, over the Gentiles and over all of the kingdoms of the earth, and not only over the earth, but over all of creation, and not only for a short period of time, but forever and ever and ever and ever. So Paul is going to trace, partly in this book, how the gospel fulfills the promises of God. Why does that make it such good news? Because it tells us that God is a promise keeper. And if the first coming of Christ was a fulfillment of God's covenant promises to his people and to all of the nations. If God kept that promise to send the Messiah, then we can trust God's promises for the future. We can trust, as Paul will say later, that our hope in Jesus won't disappoint us, won't let us down. God fulfills his promises. Because he's a promise keeper, that means my past doesn't define me, but my future in Jesus Christ defines me. That means my future is not uncertain, but it is certain and secure in Jesus Christ. I can trust all of God's promises. Now, some of the promises that Paul is almost certainly referring to, one is God's covenant that he made with Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel. So if you, if you go back to Genesis 12, you'll see God calls Abraham out of paganism and idolatry and calls him to follow Yahweh. And he says, Abram, the Lord said to Abram, Abram, here's what I want you to do. Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. So go to this land. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. In other words, I'll lavish my favor on you. I'll give you good things. I will make your name great. So you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, Abram, I will curse. And in you, in you and your descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Paul will talk about this promise in Romans. He talks about it in Galatians. And he says, Jesus is the descendant of Abraham through whom all of the nations are blessed. Jesus is a fulfillment of this promise that God would send a descendant of Abraham, not only to lavish God's favor on Abraham's physical descendants, but on all of the nations 
of the earth. So Paul will talk about this promise to Abraham several times. But then if you fast forward 500 years, Paul also talks about the promises God made to King David, a Jewish king, again, about 500 years after Abraham. He says, David, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So he says, David, after you're gone, a descendant is gonna come who will reign on your throne, not only for a period of time, but forever and ever and ever. And as you move throughout the rest of the prophets, Psalm 89 and Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 and the book of Isaiah and Micah and all of these prophets, they pick up on this promise and this hope begins to grow that one day a king is coming, descended from David's line, who will reign in righteousness and holiness and truthfulness and perfect justice over not only Israel, but all the nations of the earth. And Paul is going to say, we'll see it here in verse 3 of chapter 1, Paul is going to say, Jesus is that promised king. Jesus is the son of David. You'll see that in the book of Matthew. You'll see that in the book of Luke. They all go back to Abraham and David, and they say, God's promises to the patriarchs are fulfilled in Jesus. He's a fulfillment of what God promised to do, to bring life and salvation to everyone. So what does that mean? It means, again, God is a promise keeper. This is really important. And the reason it's really important uh, is, is this, that we are not generally promise keepers, are we? Every human being you know will let you down. We're not great at keeping promises. Every corporation you know will let you down. Every group, every government will let you down. Anybody who is an Amazon Prime subscriber, you know that promises don't always hold true, right? Because if you're an Amazon Prime subscriber, no doubt at some point you've ordered something and expected two-day shipping. And so you go, great, my spouse's birthday is on Wednesday. I should get this by Tuesday, and then I'll present it to them on Wednesday. And then on Tuesday afternoon, you get that dreaded email that says, there's been a delay in your package. We cannot deliver it today. It will come sometime between Friday and 2028. We're really not sure when. We don't know where it is. And so they do not fulfill their end of the bargain. And then what does that mean? That the next day, you're unable to fulfill your relational responsibility to deliver a gift. So you write a note that says, I promise I bought you something. It's coming someday. We can't always control whether we can fulfill our promises. Sometimes we choose not to fulfill our promises so that every person or entity or government or company or thing that you put your trust in, it will fail you, except for Jesus. And so Paul begins and he says, Jesus Christ's gospel, the good news of Jesus is that he came in fulfillment of all God's promises. And if God fulfilled his promises to send to Jesus, he will fulfill his promises for Jesus to return. If Jesus came once and died for our sins and rose from the dead, he will come again to bring us with him to his kingdom. You can take it to the bank. Unlike any other human promise, God's promises hold true. So the gospel is the very best news because it fulfills God's 
promises. And then he says it's the very best news, secondly, because it spotlights God's Son. So follow with me starting in verse 3. This gospel, it is concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to zero in for a minute. Paul says, this is really good news, not only because Jesus fulfills God's promises, but also the gospel is about Jesus. And he doesn't want us to lose sight of this because as you move through the book of Romans, there are a lot of complicated theological topics, you know, justification and sanctification and, and, and uh, pneumatology and, and righteousness and what that means and all of these complicated topics. But he says, I want you to write up front, lock it into your mind that the gospel at its center is about Jesus. Jesus is fully God, the second person of the Trinity and fully human. And this is really good news because only in Jesus do we have somebody who can bridge the gap between sinful humanity and a holy God? Only in Jesus do we have somebody who can bridge the gap between sinful humanity and a holy God. And so Paul says this is really good news because God didn't leave us alone, but he sent his son to a real place at a real time in history who died on the cross and rose from the dead. Jesus is the way to eternal life, so that the good news of God is all about, all about his son. And he says he's a descendant of David, as we mentioned, according to the flesh. That is, he is fully human, but he is also descended from the right line in order to be the Messiah, the anointed king of Israel. But then he says he was also uh, declared or designated the son of God in power by the resurrection from the dead. Now, what is Paul getting at? Well, he's not saying that Jesus became the Son of God for the first time when he rose from the dead. That's heresy. That's a heresy called adoptionism. Instead, what he is saying is that when Jesus rose from the dead, he became the Son of God in power. And what does that mean? It means that his resurrection from the dead validates that Jesus holds all the authority in the universe, not only to reign, over Israel or over the earth, but over all of the earthly powers, over all of the universe, not only for today, but for tomorrow and the next day and for all eternity. Just as Philippians chapter two says that because of his death and resurrection, God exalted him and gave him, what? The name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That Jesus' resurrection from the dead validates that he is the Son of God. He was already. It proves it to all of creation. And so now he has the right and authority to reign, and he will forever and ever and ever. And it means that he has defeated all of the enemies that stand between us and God. Satan introduces temptation to Adam and Eve. That temptation becomes sin. That sin leads to death. Death 
leads to eternal separation from God, to hell. And Paul tells us through his death and resurrection, Jesus removes all of these enemies. He defeats all of these enemies. I want you just to imagine for a minute that you had a list of all of the enemies standing between you and victory, right? All of the enemies that would stand between you and a victory that you've longed for and prayed for and hoped for for decades and decades. And you have this list of enemies. And you say, how do we get to victory? How do we find hope? And you say, what we need, we need somebody to to go for us and win the victory. And so you place your hope uh, maybe in a person, maybe in in a group, right? In a group of people. And you say, here are the ones who will secure for us victory, right? But but here's the problem is that uh, we know that our hopes in our champions often usually let us down, right? They're, they're, not, they're not fully reliable. It's not always in their control, is it? And so we place our hopes for victory all the time in things that, that let us down, right? But Jesus Christ always, always, always wins, And so if you've placed your hope in him, Paul says, this is really good news. Because Jesus is now the one, through his death and resurrection, who secures your victory and mine over all of the enemies, sin, death, Satan, and hell, all of the enemies that keep us from knowing God and having eternal life because of who he is and because of what he did. So the gospel of good news is all about Jesus. It spotlights God's son. That is really, really, really good news. Thirdly, the gospel is the very best news because it saves God's people. It saves God's people. I'm going to camp on this last point for a little while this morning because this is at the essence of the book of Romans. The theme of the book of Romans really deals with how the gospel operates, how it saves us. So I want to begin by reading verses 8 through 15. I'll make a couple of comments, and then we'll look at verses 16 to 17. Okay, the, the gospel saves God's people. Start in verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making request. If perhaps now, at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you, for I long to see you, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you. And have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So summary of this section, Paul says, hey, I I heard about your faith in Jesus. And that really made me happy because your faith in Jesus is spreading throughout the whole world. And the more your faith in Jesus spreads, the more people hear about it, the more people will come to know Jesus. And so I pray for you all the time, 
every day. I thank God that it's being proclaimed. But I pray that, that I'll also be able to come to you to encourage you to hold the faith, to keep the faith, because I want you to understand that what you once believed, it's still true today. What transformed your life on the day you believed in Jesus still is transforming lives today. So he says, I wanted to come to you. I wanted to encourage you. I wanted to share this with you, and, I, and I'm still hoping to do that. And he says, everywhere I go, I want to preach the gospel to people who haven't yet believed it, but also to people like you who have believed it. Because those who haven't believed it yet, they need to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, from separation from God to life with God. But those who have heard it need a reminder and an encouragement to press on and keep believing that it's true. All right, so he says, I proclaim it because I've been called to preach this message by God to everyone who will listen. In Galatians, he says, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, everybody who will listen, Paul says, I want to proclaim it because this is God's salvation. That's where he goes in verses 16 to 17. So I want to camp here for a few minutes, starting in verse 16. This is really the theme of the book of Romans. Chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. He says, I want to preach the gospel everywhere. Why? Verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, this is a, this is a figure of speech. It's called a litetes. I think I pronounced that right. But basically, it's a way of, you kind of say the opposite to really emphasize something. So if you said, Michael Jordan wasn't a bad basketball player, right? What you mean is, he's really an amazing one. He's the best. So when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, He's saying, I am really proud to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ for the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm proud of the gospel. And here is why. Here's why I preach it. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, that is to God's chosen people first, and also to the Greek, to everybody else, for in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written but the righteous man shall live by faith. So I want to break down this, these couple of verses for a couple of minutes because it, it answers several questions about the gospel and it lays out the theme of Romans for us moving forward. So who does the gospel save? Who is this available to, this power of God unto salvation? Paul tells us, everyone who believes, everyone who believes, Jew or Gentile, everyone who believes, has the opportunity to have their sins forgiven, to have a new relationship with God, to have the hope of eternal life. Any person who simply believes that I need eternal life because I am a sinner and God has provided that eternal life through the work of Jesus Christ on my behalf, anybody who believes that can know that they have eternal life. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You have to understand, this idea that the gospel is for everyone, that is an idea Paul, once he encountered it, he never recovered from it. This idea that God in his grace would offer eternal life, eternal life for absolutely free on the basis of what Jesus did not on the basis of what we have done or will do or are doing, but on the basis of what Jesus alone did. The idea that God would open the doors of heaven wide to Jew and Gentile, anybody who believed, that drove 
Paul's mission and his writing. It animates everything he writes. It's going to be a core concept in the book of Romans, that the gospel is for everyone who believes. Heaven never runs out of space. I read an article this week about a, a dad who at the last minute bought Taylor Swift tickets for his daughter and several friends at a cost of $21,000 per ticket. And I remember reading that and thinking, why? Why did he do it? Well, apart from the fact that he's insane, why did he do it? Well, because the demand exceeded the supply. There's only so many seats in the arena. Once they're gone, the cost goes up. And he wanted it that badly. But only so many people can get in. So it's expensive. A lot of things in this world are like that. There's not enough. It costs a lot. And we have to pay the cost. But what Paul says is that because of Jesus Christ, the most valuable entrance in the world, the entrance into heaven, is open wide for free. Why? Because we sang it earlier. Jesus paid the debt. Jesus paid it all. He paid what was necessary and said, anybody now who is connected to Jesus by faith can have eternal life. The gospel saves everyone who believes. You, me, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female. People who have been to church a lot in the last three or four months. People who haven't been to church in years. Everyone who believes. What does it save us from? What does it save us from? We're going to see this more as we move through the book of Romans, especially beginning next week. But we're going to see in chapters 3 through 5, it saves us from sin and its consequences. Remember, we said Jesus in his death and resurrection, he defeated all of the enemies of the people of God. Sin and the death that comes from sin and hell and Satan and all of these enemies that keep us from God. So the gospel, the good news of Jesus, saves those who believe from sin and all of its consequences. Uh, you're probably familiar with this passage, which we'll get to in a few weeks, Romans 3, verses 23 to 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified, that is set right, declared to be right with God as a gift. You're declared to be right with God, not because you're a good person, not because you've worked hard, not because you've avoided vices. You are justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption. That idea of redemption is the, the, the purchase of you and me that comes from Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus Christ. Jesus paid the cost so we can enter into heaven. And we are saved from sin, death, hell, Satan, everything that separates us from God. We're going to see that in the weeks to come. That's what it saves us from. What does it save us for? Well, I have a list here. We're not going to go through all of them in detail today. But as we move through the book of Romans, we'll cover... All of these, but, but here's just a short list. Saves us for eternal life. We're going to see that in Romans chapter 7. It saves us for peace with God. We were enemies of God, rebellious against God, and now we have peace with God. It gives us the power to obey, where before, uh, the law of Moses, it gave a list of rules, a list of commands, but no empowerment, no power to obey. 
Now, because of the Holy Spirit, we'll see this in chapter 8, we have the power to obey God where previously we could not. Inclusion among God's people. Gentiles now get to participate with Jews in the people of God and in the kingdom of God and transformed lives. That's chapters 12 through 16. It will change your life. It saves us toward and for all of that. And then the, the, the last question these verses answer, how does it save us? How does this work? How is it that through Jesus we can be saved from the consequences of sin and for eternal life and relationship with God? I wanna, I wanna read verse 17 again and then break down what it says. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So how does Paul say the gospel saves? Well, first of all, he says, God gives us his righteousness. Now, what is righteousness? That's an important word. That's going to be central to the book of Romans. A lot of times we think of righteousness as avoiding vices, right? Maybe I, I don't drink too much. I don't commit adultery. I don't kill people. I try not to lie. That's an aspect of righteousness. But at its core, righteousness really means this, that, that I meet my relational obligations before God. To be righteous is to be right with God. So that may, there may be moral obligations, there, there may be ethical obligations, there may be worshipful obligations. There are certain obligations that you and I, as God's creation, owe to him. We owe him ourselves, our lives, our holiness, all of those things. God has a standard that he wants us to meet up to. If you meet up to that standard, that is righteousness. You might think about righteousness as this way. Uh, in, in every relationship, there are certain expectations. So in a marriage, there are, there are expectations that you, that you may hash out with your spouse. You meet those expectations, you're on good terms. You consistently fail to meet those expectations, you'll be on bad terms. That would be you are unrighteous, you're out of sorts, you're not in good Standing. Let me, let me say it from a financial angle. Uh, think about your relationship with the IRS, if that's not too painful for you. But think about this for a minute. You make a certain amount of money every year. The IRS wants a certain amount of that money every year. In your relationship with the IRS, you are obligated to pay them a certain amount of money out of your income. If you don't do that, you are in bad standing with the United States government. That is unrighteous, you're out of sorts. You've gotta do something to fix that, to fix that relationship. But what, the, what you have to do is pay, right? You gotta pay the bill. Now if you don't pay the bill, that bill will not only carry you through your life, there's no statute of limitations, by the way, on tax evasion, it goes with you. I don't know what happens when you die. I hadn't looked into this. Maybe it carries on to your children and your children's children for generations, right? And if you don't pay, the debt will just keep adding up. You'll just dig a deeper and deeper and deeper hole through penalties and interest and failure to pay, and you can get so deep in that hole that you can't get yourself out. And the only way out would be for you to find a way to pay or somebody to pay it for you. You need somebody to come in and pay that debt of righteousness to fulfill your obligation. When we read the book of Romans, that's going to be the concept of righteousness, is that God has a standard and none of us meet it. 
That's the concept of sin. We all fall short, as Romans 3 says. You've probably heard, and we'll talk more about this, it was originally an archery term to miss the mark, to not hit the standard of God relationally, morally, ethically. All of us fall short. So Adam and Eve dug a hole for us with their sin, and all we've done is we picked up the shovel and just kept on digging. And now each one of us stands in a hole so deep we can never get out apart from the intervention of God. And so what God does in the gospel, this is how it saves. He gives us his righteousness. How can he do that? Well, he does it through the work of Jesus. Jesus was a perfect man who perfectly fulfilled all of the obligations of his relationship to God, his relationship to other people. Perfectly fulfilled the law. And then he died as a payment for our failure to fulfill God's standards. That's what Jesus did at the cross. He paid for our failure to meet God's standards of righteousness. He's a perfect sacrifice, a perfect human being. Fully God, so an infinite sacrifice. Fully man, so he can stand in for you and me. He paid the penalty, and then he rose from the dead, declared to be forever perfectly righteous, and the dispenser of righteousness to everyone who believes in him. So you and I stand under this mountain of relational and moral debt before God. Jesus, by his work, says, here's what I've done. I have built up a bank account, so to speak, of infinite righteousness that I am willing, Jesus says, just to credit to your account. How does he credit to your, it to your account? Well, Paul tells us, we receive it by faith. We simply come and say, Jesus, I know that I need your righteousness because I've fallen short. And Jesus says, I have more than enough for you and you and you and you and everybody in the entire world, for all of creation, all who believe. This is why Paul says that, that uh, God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. Now, theologians and commenters debate a lot about what that phrase means. There are literally hundreds of interpretations. So I'm not going to go through all of them, but I will tell you, when he says uh, it's revealed from faith to faith, I think what he's getting at is, is probably the best way to translate this is by faith from first to last. You receive the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ by simply trusting in what he has done. That's how you begin your life with him at the beginning. And you are still today saved by grace through faith. You don't have to earn the righteousness of God. It's not like you believe and then you've got to run on a treadmill to prove you're worthy to God. You already are because of Jesus Christ. He has transferred his worthiness, his righteousness to your account. God gives us his righteousness through the work of Jesus. We receive it by faith. Just as Habakkuk had said, the righteous man will live by faith. The righteous person doesn't trust in his own strength his own power, his own goodness, his own intelligence, his own morality. He looks to God and says, God, I need you to give me what I don't have, which is righteousness. And God says, I will, through the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's the good news. It's the very best news. The gospel fulfills God's promises. It spotlights God's son. It saves God's people. So how do we respond to that? How should you and I respond? Of course, first and foremost, believe in Jesus. If you haven't believed in Jesus, 
Again, no, there's nothing you can do that will earn you God's favor, that will earn you eternal life. You simply trust in what Jesus has done to give you the righteousness that you don't have, that I don't have, that none of us have. If you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your sins and eternal life, you can come talk to me. You can write down on one of those cards that you would like to talk to somebody about Jesus. You can drop it in the box in the back. We'll give you a call. We want you to know him. For those who have trusted in Jesus, keep believing. And let me clarify, I'm not saying there's some level of faith you have to maintain to be sure that you're going to heaven. That's not what I'm getting at. What I am saying is that if you believed in Jesus, know your salvation is by faith from the very beginning to the very end. So today, if you're worried about the future, you can know with certainty that because Jesus Christ has died and risen for you, your future is secure and hopeful. If you don't know who you can trust or what you can trust, or you're going, look, my job has disappointed me. My spouse or my kids have let me down. My friends have abandoned me. All of these things have happened, and I don't know who to trust, and there's shaky ground underneath my feet. Paul would say, keep trusting in Jesus, that what was once true when you believed, that you can trust him to fulfill his promises, it's still true today. If you're in the room and you are mired in shame because of your sin, You can trust that when you believed in Jesus, all your sin, past, present, future, was washed away. So you sit in this room this morning, no longer covered in shame, but instead covered by the righteousness of Jesus. That is as true of you today as it was the day you believed. You are not defined by your past sins, but by the present righteousness that God has given you in Jesus Christ and the future hope that he promises, that our God who always fulfills his promises says you can trust. So the gospel is the very best news. Do we believe it? Do we remember it? Do we proclaim it? Even in those moments of doubt and fear. It's the very best news. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior, and your Son who has given us eternal life and hope for the future. We thank you that you didn't leave us alone in our sin and in that infinite debt, but through Jesus, you have given us forgiveness and his righteousness. Let us trust you today, even more than we did yesterday and tomorrow, even more than we do today. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.